How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensey. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going pretty darn good, and I think we got something real special here. We do, Tim. We do, absolutely. So, Tim, I'm extremely honored to get together this evening, not only because we get the opportunity to chat with a former NHLer, but also because we're breaking some new ground here this evening by talking to a former Ottawa senator. Our guest this week was selected by the Quebec Nordiques, 81st overall in 1986. His career saw numerous stops throughout the NHL through 16 seasons, including the expansion seasons for the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim and Columbus Blue Jackets before hanging up his pads following the 2003-04 season with the Dallas Stars. However, despite the numerous teams he played on, for many people, he will be best remembered for his tenure with the Ottawa Senators. Ladies and gentlemen, please joining us on the show, former Ottawa Senator Ron Tognat. Ron, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Great, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Ron, I can't express how excited and how honored we are to have you on the program. And we've got a fully loaded interview with you this evening. But before we do any of that, Super Bowl 55 last night, were you going for Tom Brady or were you going for the Chiefs? I was going for Tom Brady. I have to admit, um, I think him and Gronk, I just wanted to see another video of them winning and dancing to their song and kind of doing their thing. I think that I thought it was going to be KC blowing out Tampa Bay. I didn't think it would be the other way. So I thought it would be a close game with hopefully Tom having a chance to win it at the end, but that game was over early. It wasn't even close. I mean, I had Kansas City by 10, but just watching Tom Brady turn the clock back 10 years and burn them like Kansas City was the greatest show on turf. It was just, it was unbelievable. I still can't believe that we live in a world where he has seven rings today. Yeah, he has more rings than any other team. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, Mahomes kind of was handcuffed with uh, missing two of his offensive linemen that were really key guys because Tampa Bay's defense got after him all night and that made it really difficult for him. So I think that was a bigger factor than anything else. As said in the intro, you were taken 81st overall by the Quebec Nordiques in the 1986 draft where you played parts of five seasons for Quebec. The Quebec Nordiques as a franchise is one that mirrors a team like the Senators in many ways. Small market franchise, playing in a large south of an original six franchise in the same province, being unable to land those big free agents and resulting in the team having to develop their own stars like Joe Sackick and Matt Sundin. While I've heard many players talk fondly about their time in Quebec, I imagine starting your career in a market that is predominantly francophone must have been a culture shock for somebody who isn't French-Canadian. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was it like being drafted by Quebec and what was it like playing in a francophone market like Quebec City? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, I took a few classes uh, in French growing up and through school and stuff, so I had like a really basic uh, entry-level French in me. But, the, it, you know, but playing in that city was really a special place. It was very old. It was beautiful. You know, like the restaurants were outstanding. You know, for us, though, at that time, we were a team that was getting rid of all veterans and bringing in all young guys, kind of like what the Ottawa Senators are doing right now. And we were going to pay a price for that uh, over a few years. But saying that, all of a sudden, you, you today we see we got Hall of Famers and stuff that were on that team, and and I think that 
you know, it's pretty special to have those guys as friends. And, you know, we all really enjoyed our time in Quebec and we loved playing there. We loved the fans there. We loved the culture. And uh, it was actually a great place to play. Well, and I know when talking about the Nordiques, of course, the one big thing that comes out of that is Eric Lindros refusing to go to Quebec. And I understand you were still with the Nordiques when that happened. What was that feeling like in the room when the news broke that Eric Lindros basically told the Quebec Nordiques he's not coming to play? Yeah, I think we all really wanted him to be there because we knew he was a special player and what he could do to our team to help our team. But, you know, when I sit back afterwards and understand the logistics and how things work, um, if Eric Lindros was to sign with the Quebec Nordiques, they would own his rights till he was 31 years old back then. So he would have no chance of getting out. They would just have to match contracts. So he wouldn't be a free agent until he was 31. So he decided to have his fight at the beginning uh, because he didn't want to be there, which is, I, I think, still a loss for him because I think it was a, a very special place to play. And you never know, maybe he would have been part of that Stanley Cup winning team that was in Colorado uh, as well. So maybe he missed out on that. So, But we were disappointed he didn't come because we thought he was a special player and that he could have really helped us. Well, I can't even imagine a franchise that would have had Joe Sackick, Matt Sundin, and Eric Lindros all in that same one franchise. And Owen Nolan. And Owen um, Nolan, yeah. So, yeah, like we, we had special players there. Uh, uh, we had some defensemen when we drafted fairly Curtis Lecician, but I think most of the guys that got the press were all, are all offensive guys that, uh, you know, are in the Hall of Fame. For sure. Another thing that a lot of people remember about those Quebec Nordiques teams was the rivalry with Montreal. What was it like being in it? Well, in the morning of the game, it was going to be a special day because we were playing Montreal. And at that time, we weren't nearly as successful as them uh, during those seasons because we were going in. But uh, I got a little bit of a taste when we had the veteran guys there. And uh, it was uh, it was very, very physical nasty hockey and we knew that morning that we were in for something special that night that anything could happen you know any one of us could be fighting or all of us could be fighting so um you know we entered those games expecting anything and um, a lot of nights there was many brawls many fights and i don't quite understand why we did it. not all of us are from quebec actually very fewer but for whatever reason uh that's the way it was supposed to be and that's what we, we just continued following everybody's footsteps uh, that were ahead of us. When looking back on your career, one of the first things that's always brought up is a game versus the Boston Bruins in March of 1991 when you made 70 out of 73 saves in a 3-3 tie, which ended up being the second highest number of saves made in a regular season game. And I remember as a kid, my dad gave me this book that was all about hockey stories, and I remember reading about that as a little kid. And what really stood out for me is... For as tough of a sports city as Boston is, I, it really always stood out to me is that the Boston fans gave you a standing ovation at the end of that game. When looking back on that, was there anything you did differently that day heading into the game, or did you just get into a rhythm once the game started? I, I prepared the same for every single game, from the meals I ate to the time I woke up. to My whole day was basically uh, a routine. So I entered every game that way. That way I felt that when the puck dropped... It was just another day. And, you know, that game, the difference in that game was that we're playing a small rink in, in Boston with the best team in the league, and we were the worst. 
and things just continued to get better for me as the game went on. I kept making saves, and it started to get easier and easier. And, you know, by the end of the game, I think they were really taking it to us in the third period and in the overtime. But by then, I was kind of really in a groove where I really didn't feel I was going to be beaten with a shot and that we had a chance to win the game. And that's all I kept looking at is a chance to win the game. But at the end, as you said, there was a standing ovation. And, I th- and even the broadcasters, because I watched the game afterwards, were, were like, they're giving Ron Tegnet a, a standing ovation. And it actually wasn't for me. It was for Guy Lafleur. Guy Lafleur was playing his last game in the Boston Garden that night. And he was retiring after the year. So it was like a minute left in the game, and it was his last shift, and they are giving him a standing ovation. And, um, you know, so the broadcasters thought it was for me, but I ended up getting mine with like eight seconds to go. Uh, when I made a save on Ray Bork late in the, in the, in the overtime, and that's when I got mine uh, actually from the Boston fans. And that's funny because this morning I was actually watching that on YouTube, and that's the one moment I remember was Ray Bork in overtime, and he was right in the slot, and he just wired one right at you, and you were just like, nope, got it. Well, uh, I goal interfered on Cam Pillier on that today's game, but... Uh, I'd like to show those videos to all the people now that watch the games and screaming goalie interference, goalie interference, because I had Cam Neely inside my crease from the time the puck dropped to the time it end, and there was never a call for goalie interference. There was none of that. To, you know, so I, I think overall I was pretty lucky to get toppy as I did because many a times guys would fall on you because I'd go down into a butterfly or make a save and my knees would be exposed and I'd be in a bad position and they could have fallen on my knees and tore me up pretty good. But I think I was pretty fortunate. Okay. So fast forwarding a bit here, August of 1996, you signed with the Senators after a couple of seasons where you bounced around in the NHL and you had a season with the Portland Pirates of the American Hockey League. Prior to your arrival at Ottawa, the Senators had been through a number of goaltenders through their first four seasons, with Peter Sidorkowitz being the most noted. That January, the Senators had acquired Damian Rhodes in the Brian Barrett for Wade Redden trade. Then you would join the team to form the goalie tandem that Ottawa that got Ottawa into the playoffs the first time in 1997. What kind of relationship did you have to have with Damian that helped you form the strong tandem you had in Ottawa? You know, for me, normally... Um... My only partners, we always worked as a team, so uh, it was no different with Damien. I think that when I came to Ottawa, uh, right from the beginning, I was told that I was the backup, and you know, Damien was the starter, and and uh, you know, my job was to be ready when it called upon, and you know, and you know, I played that full year in the minors, so I kind of expected that's the way it should be. But on the other hand, there's a side of me that says, you know, I got to compete uh, for ice, and I want to try to compete against Damien as well to see how much ice I can get. And, you know, the better I play, it's going to force him to play better. And at the end of the day, that's good for the team. So um, if, you, if you have two goalies that the team feels confident in, they're both playing well and they're both pushing each other, then that just does nothing but benefit the team. And I think that was a big part of our success that year is that uh, on, on most nights, Damien and I would give our team a, a good start and give us – you know, we give them a good game, but in their turn, they we played very defensive hockey in Ottawa with Jacques Martin and on most nights, so we benefited from that as well. So the 96-97 season is one that, in the history of the Ottawa Senators, is still looked back very fondly on with the franchise making the playoffs for the first time despite the losing record. 
Ottawa made the playoffs as the seventh seed in the East. First round opponent is the Buffalo Sabres. Or should I say in the first round opponent was Dominic Hasek. With no disrespect to guys like Martin Berdur or Patrick Waugh, Dom, without question, is the greatest goalie I've ever seen. He is somebody who, no pun intended, was just next-level dominant, as evident by the fact that the next year he won the Hart Trophy, the Vesna, and an Olympic gold medal. Heading into the playoff series, what was going through your mind knowing you would have to face off against Hasek? Well, I just knew that, you know, to give my team a chance, I couldn't give up any weak goals at all. Um, that would be a killer. You know, and then that's because... Uh, even actually the last game of the year, the second last game of the year when we made the no, it was the last game of the year. Last game of the year we made the playoffs. We had to beat on the Cassick one nothing just to get in the playoffs, and uh, so that was kind of what I was expecting I was going to have to do uh, in that first series against them. And I think when it was all said and done, it was a really low scoring series, and my goals against in that series was under two goals against average, uh, but we lost in game seven. We had a team that was scoring some goals too, but. At the end, I've, I've watched Dominic Hasek uh, practice, and I've seen and sat and watched him for like 40 minutes, and in a practice, he maybe gave up four or five goals. And I'm like, how is this possible? You know, the amount of work, the amount of shots, but he was that good. And, you know, I, I do agree with you to a certain extent that he might have been the best ever just because he was so unorthodox in the way he was used. But it's, it's tough to label him that with the amount of wins that Marty has and with Patrick Bond's team when he was, I think that uh, just like to be able to see some really special goalies from the time. Yeah, well, I know during the COVID lockdown, Sportsnet was playing some of those old classic games from the 90s. And I remember one of them was, I believe, game six of the 99 finals where Buffalo played Dallas. And I was watching that thinking like, Okay, there's there's no way Buffalo must have been this good. The only reason they, to me, the only reason they ever went as far as it is because of Hasek. Because if you look at that team, they were definitely a hardworking team. But without Hasek, I don't really know where they would have gone. To be perfectly honest, he was he was the reason, and he was also the reason why they beat Canada in the Olympics that one year too, um, where he just by himself single handedly. You know, they get to the shootout, and there wasn't a chance Canada was going to win in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I know one of the delivery drivers that I deal with at work is originally from the Czech Republic, and whenever I've asked about Hasek, he looks at me, he goes, he's like, he's next level famous in the Czech Republic just for that 98 Olympics. He could run for president there, probably. Sticking with the 97 first round series versus Buffalo, a moment that still sticks with fans in regards to the Senators' playoff heartbreaks. Game 7... Derek Plant, and that's a goal that honestly I've watched countless times over the years. And honestly, it looked like you beat him clean, but the puck took a funny bounce and went in. So, talk to us a little bit about what really happened on that play, and can you set the record straight whether the puck went through your glove? Oh, he was coming down his offside, and he cut to the middle, and he he wound up and shot it. I got a late look at it because it went through my defenseman's legs, so I didn't catch it early, and. Um, but I got the glove up where I thought I made the save. But the best way to explain it is that the glove I had, I had for the entire season. And usually we'll go through one or two. We go through two or three, I mean, gloves a year. But I couldn't get a glove that really felt special in my hand. So I was only using that glove for games only for from the halfway point of the season on. Never practiced with it. It was just for games. 
but the glove was really getting beaten down and we had stitched it in certain areas and stuff to keep it alive because I just couldn't find anything I felt good with it on my hand. So, but he cut outside, inside, let the shot go. And the way to explain is that, uh, you know, in baseball, you get like that um, ice cream cone catch where yep. the ball's sticking out the top and your glove's closed. That was at the end of my glove. So the back of the mitt had kind of pushed in a little bit. It was in my glove, but when my my wrist snapped back because of the, the, the velocity of the shot, my wrist snapped back, puck released out and slipped back in. So the glove itself broke down, but the but the puck didn't go through the meshing or the meshing of the glove at all. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I know, like I said, I've watched that so many times, and I'm watching it going like, I don't know what happened there. I don't know if it hit the glove. I don't know if it went right through it. So the fact that when when you agreed to come on, that was one of the first things I wanted to ask was like, okay, what really happened on that play? Yeah. Another quick hockey question here, going into your tenure with Pittsburgh, just obviously a pench, another penchant for long games, uh, the five overtime game. Once you get playing for almost, sorry, over two games, how does that feel in the net? Well, it's exhausting. Like uh, you're dehydrating, you know, don't forget it's late in the year too, so it's warm outside in Pennsylvania at the time. So if it's warm outside, it's warmer inside and with all those people in the stand. So uh, basically everything I, I wore was soaking wet uh, for most of the night. You know, try to put things on hair dryers, keep the gloves dry and stuff to get through the game. But, you know, I was a small guy to begin with. And, uh, you know, I was probably able to, 160 pounds before the game started and I finished at 148 so I lost 12 pounds in one night and by the end of it uh, as soon as the game was over and we had lost I got to the room and I got my equipment off I just wanted to go home and just go to bed you know I didn't want to do anything else but the body really seized up on me and um, you know I, I really felt I wasn't capable of I wasn't feeling strong enough for the next game which was a couple nights later my body still felt weak you know, and I didn't uh, feel good, but you know, it, it was it was a special day though. I, I I would never give that up, even though we lost. I would love to have won, uh, and I think that was the difference of the series that game. Whoever won that game was going to win the series, and I obviously I would have loved to win that game, but I wouldn't give it back because it was really a, a test of, you know, everyone said I was too small to be in the NHL, and here I was playing, you know, seven and a half periods or eight and a half, whatever it was. Uh, you know, playing from seven at night till two thirty in the morning, and I was too small. I wasn't strong enough to play. So for me to do that, it was kind of like uh, I proved some people wrong. Mm -hmm. Did you get sorry? Did you get a chance to watch the game between Columbus and Tampa Bay, where that record was almost upset? And uh, did it bring you flashbacks? Oh yeah, I was watching it because part of it says, "Oh, I want to see these guys pass it," but the other part says, "Yeah, but." You know, I still like those times where we're watching the game, we're going to overtime, and all of a sudden the second one, the third one. First thing they go is back in, and they bring it up. So it's always nice to be able to hear, you know, it's many years later, just to hear your name and hear the teams and and and, and hear that you were a part of something special. And, you know, I had a lot of friends on the Philly team too, and, and I talked to Boucher afterwards, who was the other goalie, and he goes, I don't know how much more time I had left. And I said, I was at the end of the line. I was, I didn't know which end I was supposed to go to before every period. I'd come to the door, and I'm like, which end Which end am I supposed to go to? So the mind was working on us. Everything was just, uh, yeah, 
things were breaking down. Was that the same series? I believe that Andy Delmore scored a hat trick as well. Andy Delmore did get a hat trick in that series. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I think it might have been. It might have been Game Five though. Okay. Uh, just sticking with your time with Pittsburgh, and when it comes to the Penguins, one guy that always comes up is Yarmer Yager. And throughout your career, you played with so many guys that are now in the Hall of Fame, like Joe Sakic, and we mentioned Matt Sundin. Yarmer Yager is going to be in the Hall of Fame the second he retires. Was there one guy, or even a couple of guys, when you look back in your career, you just go, man, I cannot believe that I was teammates with them? Yeah, I got, uh, well, my kids actually have a really good collection of of really cool sign sticks to them, you know, from my time playing with certain players. So all these guys from Yager and I even have Lemuse, you know, I didn't play with him, but I got uh, his stick signed for the kids. So I have all these sticks, Sackick and, um, you know, Brett Hall. And, and so I have all these neat things that we've got signed for the kids so they can take that and put that in their house when they have their own places. And, you know, but uh, Yami Yager was special. Like, he was a beast. Um, you know, in that playoffs, uh, not many people know that he had a severe Charlie horse where they were draining his leg between periods. So uh, picture a big syringe going in the side of your leg because the lactic acid was building up in your leg so much that you have this fluid in there. And they were literally sucking it out of his leg. Uh, in between periods because he was building all this lactic acid and he went on to play 68 minutes as a forward which is insane for these guys you know they talk about the defense putting up 80 minutes and stuff but a forward at 68 minutes is truly unbelievable but he was doing it on on a severe charlie horse and uh he he was just a horse this guy he and but what was neat was he was a great team player he 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 was he knew he he was the best player on the team, but he never made anyone feel that he was the best. He just felt made it feel like he was just one of us. So, um, really special guy. Well, it's funny when I was reading about his time in Florida. A lot of the guys who played with him and with the Panthers said the exact same thing. Even at 43, 44 years old, two things always came up. One that you're absolutely right. The guy was built like a horse, but also he was just a great team guy that made everybody feel included. Yeah, and he, I think he just scored the other night, too. I think uh, Demetra or something gave him a pass. Uh, or someone, someone that played in the NHL gave him a pass, uh, and he scored. And So what is he now, 46? So <laughs> Something like that, <laughs> he's yeah. He's playing on his own team back home. Yeah, he's playing on his own team back home. So, um, But, no, he, he got an assist. Or he scored a goal there, which uh, was on uh, TSN, which gave me a good chuckle. So throughout your time with the Senators, there were some real milestones during that tenure, including making the playoffs, like we mentioned, in 1997, the Sens winning their first playoff series in 98. For yourself, I imagine being named your first All-Star game in 1999, replacing Curtis Joseph, must have been a huge milestone. And not only the 99 All-Star game will be best remembered as Wayne Gretzky's final as All-Star game he ever played in. So in saying that, I got to ask, what was that like to play with Wayne in his final All-Star game? Yeah, I was um, during that year. Like I was flirting with uh, the, the Hashik number for goals against. So uh, when it came to that All Star game, I was really hoping that I would get voted in or or selected to go to it. And I was a little disappointed, but I didn't. But I understood that it's pretty hard to, you know, the the three goalies would have been. I would have had to either beat uh, Belfour, Verdure, and Joseph. 
you know, to get in. So I said, yeah, that's okay. I guess, I guess the fans would have preferred to see those guys than me there. So um, I accepted that. But then when Cujo got hurt and I got the call, I was pretty excited. And the problem is we had a huge snowstorm and I couldn't get there for all the events, which was disappointing. So the team picture I couldn't get there for and all the fun stuff uh, beforehand I missed out on. But this was there for the, um, the skills competition in the game. Uh, and, of course, uh, being in that room with Wayne and, and other tremendous stars. And Wayne ran the dressing room. like Because uh, to Wayne, it was still a big event that we had to – it was fun, but it had to be organized. It had to be done right. And he wanted to make sure that the fans were happy with the product. And he was all about, guys, make sure we do this right. And, and, and he was on top of things like that because he knew it was important that the fans got the best of what uh, we could give them. So, But the biggest thing and the most amazing thing for me that whole event was when it was all said and done. And I've told people this uh, a few times, and it's, it just baffles me that I got to watch it. I was sitting in my stall, and after the game ended, Gretzky and Ray Bork, Walked to the middle of the room, exchanged jerseys, and went back and sat down. Being in that room with Wayne and Ross, what uh, we could give them. So, but the, in the room, just looking on, so we got to see the biggest thing, the most amazing uh, a few times, and it's just uh, Gretzky and Ray Morton exchanged jerseys and went back and sat in each other's jerseys and went and sat down without saying a word earlier. But for us to just sit there and watch it, like it's like the room went just quiet and everyone just stopped and looked and watched them do it, and everyone just kind of went, wow. I believe you saw that. Yeah, it's kind of like... And he, and he, won, and he won the MVP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny when you say that about Gretzky in his last All-Star game because I was watching something about Michael Jordan in his last All-Star game back in 2003, I believe, 2002. And the same thing. It was just like guys were looking at like, I cannot believe that, A, I'm in the same room as Jordan. But the fact is that he just took control of that room saying, no, if we're going to do this, we're doing this right. Yeah, and what's really impressive is that you know for all of us we're sitting there going why is he retiring like he's still one of the best guys out here but for him he, he just felt that if he can't play to his standard it was no longer time to play and he felt that he wasn't playing to his standard and you know I think that uh, he decided enough was enough for many hockey fans in the 1990s, one thing that was always a big topic of discussion was the NHL's expansion efforts into untraditional hockey markets like Florida and Nashville that was later brought up when the Vegas Golden Knights joined the NHL a few years ago. Outside of your tenure in Ottawa and Quebec, you are most known to be a really solid expansion goalie as you were taken by Anaheim in 1993, then signing with the Blue Jackets in 2000. And I believe with the Blue Jackets, you held the record for most wins by an expansion goalie up until Marc-Andre Fleury broke it a few years ago. What kind of a mindset did you have to have in order to play on an expansion team? And what was that like to play in an untraditional hockey market like Anaheim and Columbus? It was, um, you know, first and foremost, it was really easy to play in these markets because there wasn't high expectations and they knew that there was going to be some growing pains and that players that they were getting were more or less cast-offs. So the, the expectations weren't that high. But on the other hand, there was still a buzz of excitement that they were getting something new that they've wanted for some time. And they were going to get to see all these other great players come in and play against their team and not have to travel distances to go watch them. So um, expansion years, both first years were the easiest years, and they were actually our most competitive of the first three or four years. 
you know, I think uh, Anaheim, we had a chance to make the playoffs and they ended up trading me in the first year because what we had was fighters and goalies. And so they traded away a couple tough guys and they traded away me because they had a chance to make, make the playoffs in their first year. Columbus was the same. We were in it uh, for most of the, of the time and I think the last month we kind of fell off and just couldn't keep the pace. But our numbers were pretty good. We put up 70, 80 points or something in our first year. So the following year, the honeymoon was over, and that's when the, the losing starts. And um, But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that's very lucky because of expansion. It, it maybe kept me in the league. It kept me playing. It kept me going. And, you know, a neat thing for me, which might be difficult for someone to beat, is I'm the, the only goalie that's got the first win for two franchises. So because of expansion, I got the first win for the Ducks and I got the first win for Columbus. And, you know, the only way that could happen again now is maybe Marc-Andre Fleury goes to an expansion team, Seattle, and, you know, gets the first win there. Now he's got two, you know, but uh, I don't know how many more expansion teams are coming, but uh, it's kind of a neat thing to say that I own the first win for two franchises. When speaking about your time in Columbus, Tugger, I know that one thing that always gets brought up is the vote for Tugger campaign. For our listeners who maybe aren't of, or a bit younger, maybe don't understand what that was all about, do you mind explaining that a bit to our listeners? The first year in Columbus, it was um, the year of the election, and you know they decided to do a mock elect uh, election candidate, and I, they chose me to be that guy to be uh, a president of the United States. So vote Tugnut which was completely illegal because I was under the age of 35 and I was Canadian. So uh, it was a complete mock, you know, election. But I was wearing my equipment in farm fields. I was wearing uh, my equipment in big parks and holding babies and patting cows and, you know, walking down the streets all with my goalie equipment on. And it was just a way for them to get the fans going in Columbus with the new buzz and the new team. So I was doing all these photo shoots and all these things with my equipment on. And, um, you know, at the end I ended up getting like nine or 10 votes or something like that to be the president. So, um, it was, it was fun. You know, people, people put in there Mickey Mouse and other things for the president of the United States, but I got nine votes and, you know, but it was, it was fun doing it though. Like I really enjoyed going out and, put a smile on my face every time I went out there with my gear walking in dirt fields and asking the trainer, I'm going to get this muck off the bottom of my pads before I go on the ice. And, um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. So one final question I have about Columbus and with nowadays, you see how successful the blue jackets are in the city of Columbus. And I know when they arrived in 2000, the main team that they had to beat wasn't a pro team. It was the Ohio state Buckeyes. So, when you were in Columbus, like how big of a push did they have to make to take a dent away from Ohio State? Well, the, we didn't have to do a lot because uh, Ohio State was in hot water that year. They had some issues with some players, and their team actually was not very good the very first year for the Blue Jackets. So we didn't have to do a lot to persuade a lot of people to come watch us play and be excited about us uh, because the Buckeyes – we're in some hot water. So, but we used to love going to the games too, though. I, I went to a couple Michigan, uh, Ohio state games and stood down at field level and looking up at a hundred thousand people in the stands. And, um, you know, it's neat to have these little, um, 
works. You know, when you when you play, you can. We have the same doctors, and the one doctor says, "Just come with me, and we'll just stand on the sidelines, watch the game." We said, "Great." You know, that happened in Anaheim too. They had the LA Rams in Anaheim at the time, and Jerome Bettis was on the team then. And the doctor says, "Hey, you want to come to the game this afternoon? This is after practice." Says, sure. So I went and watched the game. They play in the 49ers, You know, against Steve Rice. Uh, uh, what's that? Jerry. Jerry Rice. Jerry, Jerry Rice and uh, Steve Young. You know, I'm watching those guys play, and um, just neat things like that uh, to be able to go see was pretty cool. Well, I remember there was an episode of Be a Pro with Brett Lindros when that was on back in the day, and I remember that they, you and Brett went to an Ohio State Buckeyes game, and I remember seeing that like 20 years ago thinking, well, that's pretty cool. Like, the fact is that, A, they were allowed to shoot that in the stadium where they played. You know, I took them around there bars open and stuff and went into like a bar and stuff like that and the cameras were coming in and nobody knew what the cameras were there for and what was going on and and uh and at that time it was early and no one was really recognizing who i was i was kind of i had the glasses on and i looked like the accountant and usually i wear a mask when i play so uh nobody really uh knew who i was and they were wondering who the camera was but uh then we went from there because they were tailgating and doing all that we went to the game and um, yeah, Brett loved it. He said, this is incredible. I said, this is really cool. Like the, the atmosphere there and just the excitement and the school, the students, uh, as I said, the tailgates, it, it was great. Post-retirement, uh, you did a bit of work with, uh, CBC on hockey night in Canada. What's it like doing color? It's way harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> you know, I have a great respect for all those guys. I'm truly amazed on how, they can retain knowledge and remember things without having to look things up and have it locked in. And I guess I wasn't an honor student in school and I wasn't good at doing exams and stuff. And obviously these guys were so, um, but no, I, I have a great respect for what they did. It was very difficult to, you know, to put the headphones on and then feel that you're going to tell a good story and you start into it and you got about a 10, 15 seconds to get this story out and someone's in your ear saying, we're going to commercial in five, four, three, and I haven't finished my story yet. And I'm just like, um, whatever, <laughs> you know? So I said, it was, it was very difficult because I had no practice in it. I only knew the hockey stuff. Uh, one thing that I think that they wanted me to do more was to really criticize players. And that just wasn't my nature. I just couldn't, you know, because I knew a lot of these guys, and I just couldn't say, you know, Wayne Brennan, that's a terrible play or, or whatever. I just couldn't say things like that, and they wanted me to be able to do that. So I don't think it was for me. So in 2017, after 17 years after you last suited up with the Senators, you once again donned the pads for the team in the Senators alumni game at Parliament Hill during the NHL 100 weekend. Doing this podcast, it really allowed Tim and I to chat with people who worked for the at the NHL 100 Classic, but we've never talked to anybody who was involved with the alumni game at Parliament Hill, and that night was so special for so many people, and for so many reasons. Number one, it was the first night that Alexei Yashin really got accepted back by the fans. So many of the old stars returned, and just the fact that the game was played on the lawn of Parliament Hill is just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for somebody who will forever be connected with the team, how special was that for you, Tugger, to be in that game? Well, I was like, I hadn't worn the equipment since 2004, you know, so it was such a long time. I remember when I got the invite, I, 
I wasn't sure, but I was hoping I would go and yeah, I got the invite and I immediately went and got my equipment because I have like hockey bags with all my equipment from all my teams, uh, stored in a storage area up there. And, um, my wife made me keep all these things and now it just takes up space and takes up like lots of dust on them. But I pulled the old bag off and dusted it off and I opened it up and I said, I got to wear this. This is the gear I wore in 1999 and I have a mask. I have everything from top to bottom. I said, I'm going to have to wear this. Game. And my son, who's my oldest son, who's a bully, he's like, you can't wear that. He goes, you're you're going to get killed. He said, you cannot wear that. You're going to get hurt for sure. That, that stuff terrible. And I said, well, it was stopped in Al McGinnis back in the day. It's got to be able to stop the old alumni guys, you know. So I put it all on, and the pads were really short. And chest and arm didn't have a lot of protection in them. And we went and did the game. And and what I really liked about this, it was just strictly an all-alumni game. So it wasn't us against, say, the Leafs or something like that. It was just all-alumni. And they did a great job, as you say, bringing everybody over, whether they're in Russia uh, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, they had all the, the guys and they really made an effort to, to accommodate the fans with their favorite players. And uh, a lot of those guys, a lot of the favorite players, I was lucky because um, those were those early years where we first started to make the playoffs and we have a lot of, we had a lot of popular players on our team. So I got to see a lot of my teammates, uh, you know, which was really cool. And, and for my family to come and see that, and my kids to come and see it, it was the last time I put the pads on, and I don't think I can do it again because I could barely walk after that game was over. I couldn't play in the third period, and I was really hurting. And I, I don't know if I could do it again. It would have to be with Columbus and after 25 years, but I don't know if my body will hold up by then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know for myself, like because I had flown out to Ottawa for that weekend, and I was only in Ottawa a few hours before I went to the alumni game. Just seeing all those old stars like yourself and Damian Rhodes was there, Yashin, Alfredson, Radic Bonk, and funny about Val Bonk right here, and I don't know if you can see this, Tugger. I have a signed Radic Bonk right where right where my fingers. I don't know if you can see that or not, but yeah, yeah, Radic signed that for me, and it, it was awesome. honestly so cool. It was just like I'm literally sitting there freezing, never experienced a real Canadian winter, thinking I cannot believe that I'm seeing all these guys that I grew up watching on Hockey Night in Canada all those years ago. Yeah, that, that was cool. And it, when, they, when, they, when they made the two teams, it was Alfredson and Phillips that did the draft. And Phillips took all the tougher guys that were his good friends and buddies, and Alfie took all the skilled guys. And I ended up being a Philly team, and I'm like, okay, what were you thinking with drafting here? This is an alumni game. There's going to be... <laughs> We got all the slow guys. They got all the fast guys. They they had everybody. They had Fisher. They had Alfredson. They had Dag. They, they had Yashin. They had everybody on their team. And so the teams were a little unfair, but uh, it didn't take away from what an amazing event it was that, uh, you know, the Ottawa Centers, Eugene Melnick put on uh, to bring us all in and take care of us all like that was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So do you think you would have been a little less sore if you were on Team Alfredson? Well, we because Damien didn't play, I got to play one period with uh, Philly's team and one period with uh, Elfie's team. And uh, the first period, they had more work on me, and I gave up a couple. But that's all I gave up because I went to Elfie's team, and I really didn't get much work. But fine. I was okay with that. <laughs> 
So one final question I got to ask Tugger. And when I look back at your career, you always had the same kind of goalie mask design. And a few years ago when Mike Condon was with the Ottawa Senators, he actually revived that look for his own goalie mask when he was playing for the Senators. How cool was that to see that on TV that you're just like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I recognize that mask. Yeah, I was, um, it, did some, it was some sort of a promotional thing because I think Anderson had Damien's mask, I think, or somebody's. And so it was something to do. I don't, I can't quite remember what it was, but they made him up for an event for something. Mm-hmm. And then they, I think they were going to sell the mask uh, or give them to a charity or something to, to make money um, towards charity. And, um, you know, uh, Mike Condon had, he chose mine and, um, he all of a sudden got on a roll and he started playing. He started winning and he won. He won. He, he, so he didn't want to take the mask off, but they need to give the mask to the, the charity or start moving around. But they said, it's going to have to wait because he was on such a roll. He's on a tear. And I remember talking to him later on and he's like, uh, I didn't want to give the mask up, but they made me give it up. And he goes, I actually contemplated making another one. And he says, but by then it was already gone. So, moved on but it, it was really neat to see someone else wearing it um it is a popular mask which is nice mm-hmm. i don't think it's anything crazy it's just a bunch of splashes and um but i thought that, that was more my personality just a you know playful guy that just had fun mm-hmm. well i know even when i look back on damien rhodes mask and that's the one that outside of patrick O'Leary's marvin the martian mask for myself that's the one that i identify with the sends given that uh, McDonald's used to have the old promotional masks that were about that big, and I had a couple of those. And I thought it was really cool because with the Senators, one thing I, I don't understand why they don't do is that they don't utilize the Peace Tower as much. And I know back in the day they had the Senegoth jersey that had the shoulder patch with the Peace Tower. I, I don't under, I've don't never understood why the Senators don't utilize the Peace Tower look as much as they should, but that's just me, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and that's... A- and that's out of my department, so mm-hmm. <laughs> they decide what they put on. But I think Damien had the apartment building right on the forehead of his. He did, yeah. I think that was one of his. Ma- yeah, and it, it was a nice looking mask. So. Oh, it was one of my favorites for sure. So, Tim, do you have any questions you got for Tiger before we head off into the close? No, no, I think we covered a ton of awesome ground here. Tugger, again, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the program. Now, before we let you go, where can the listeners find you on social media? <laughs> I am on Twitter, but I don't look at it very often. And that's about all I do. I'm not on Facebook. Uh, I like to stay off social media for the most part. Um, even even our email, this is like the, the house family email for this one. Um, you know, but uh, so it's, I'm at... Uh, um, I am on Twitter and it's not too hard to find my understanding, but people are finding me sometimes. It's just, it might take me a while to get back to you. Tugger, thank you so much for doing this. Cheers guys. Thanks. Man, you know, Tim, that was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have former Senator Ron Tugnut on the program. Yeah. And, uh, we got a ton of, ton of great stories out of them. So I'm, it's amazing. We got them on and I'm very happy about it. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug, Sanscast. I hope you've enjoyed it, because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. We can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. 
We're also on Twitter. At Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-Y-T-E, Gipster. If you want to choose an email to talk about our interview with former Ottawa Senators goaltender Ron Tugnett, shoot us an email at at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please listen, rate, and subscribe, and give us that five-star rating. Until next time, guys, I am your host, Taylor Gibson. This has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys. Woo! So long, my time here is up. They're going home!